to another episode of the DD Geopolitics Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and this is really interesting. We have Scott back with us. This is so exciting. For those of our listeners that don't know, Scott and I started this podcast together like a year ago. So it's I'm really excited to have him back. And one of our previous regular guests, uh, Brian Berletich. Brian, how are you today? Military analyst and geopolitical expert from Bangkok, Thailand. How are you today, Brian? I'm doing well. Uh, it's great to be back. I think this is the first time I've been back since uh, the rebranding. Since so the, it's, since it's the episode. Yeah, since the, since the explosion. <laughs> but it, uh, And speaking of explosions, and not to make light of the situation, but while you were sleeping, and about an hour ago, um, the Israeli, the IDF, has shelled Damascus, and I believe that they have that some arrival that some some have gotten through the air defenses that were activated. So maybe we can talk about a little bit about what what you think is advantageous for the IDF to be shelling Syria at this moment. They haven't done it for about a week or so, I think. And then why? What kind of air defenses Syria has? Why? And the you know the ultimate question uh, that all Syrians, Palestinians, and Lebanese people ask is why isn't Russia doing more to help Damascus and Aleppo. So this is something that Israel has been doing for years now, uh, specifically regarding Syria. They've been taking these shots at Syria. They have no strategic or even tactical impact. It's not as if these strikes are holding Syria back militarily. Um, their, their operations together with their Iranian and Russian allies, also their Hezbollah uh, allies from southern Lebanon, they continue conducting operations to secure Syrian territory, to um, continue putting pressure on both the, the Turkish and also U.S. Uh, presence in their territory, these illegal occupations of northern and eastern Syria. And essentially, these attacks... Uh, because they have no uh, strategic impact, they're provocations. And uh, Syria knows this, Russia knows this, Iran knows this. They know that this is a provocation. The U.S. is seeking to expand the conflict, give themselves some sort of pretext to expand the conflict in, in Syria and elsewhere across the region, and they're just simply not falling for the bait. And the United States carries out strikes like this as well in Syria. And uh, what... Syria and their Russian allies and also their Iranian allies would like to do is just keep this in check. If you look, if you zoom out, you see these attacks, if you zoom out in terms of time and you look at the, the overall vector sum of what is happening in Syria, U.S. positions are, are tenuous and, and more so each year. Turkey is a, another problem that is being worked on. The vector sum of that situation continues to move in Syria's favor. And so falling for this bait uh, would only reverse all of the gains that Syria and its allies have, have made so far. People have to understand that sometimes the, the most gratifying short-term response is often the worst type of response. We have to think in four dimensions, not just in three dimensions. So uh, the fourth dimension being time, we see Israeli missiles hit targets in Syria, we want immediate revenge. But if you think in terms of time, where will we be six months from now if we if we we react to this, overreact to this? Uh, and so that's that is the that is the calculus. And this is why they've shown restraint all this time. Israel has no military ability to take out Syria. 
uh, unless they were to use nuclear weapons, they have no ability to change the facts on the ground by just launching missiles. So uh, essentially, strategically, this could be ignored. Um, before we do get into the facts on the ground, you did mention two topics that I wanted to touch on anyway, which was Turkey militarily, because politically they give off a different message than they do maybe militarily. So um, <clears throat> we know that they allow Israeli pilots to train in their airspace, but at the same time, Erdogan is saying, you know, where we stand with the Palestinians, Israel is a whatever state, um, the Zionist entity, his language uh, uh, alludes to something different, but he, they, Turkey will not agree to any sort of oil or air embargo. Um, so what you're saying that, what, what do you, how does Turkey fit into all of this is what I'm kind of trying to get at. Well, T Turkey as a NATO member, so that that is a huge problem up front that, that everyone has to uh, deal with. Uh, the reality that they're a NATO member, they have obligations to NATO. The United States maintains a, a military base, at least one military base in Turkey. And uh, for the longest time, it had been a, a central player in the U.S. proxy war against Syria. Uh, but they also have this relationship with Russia. Uh, if you look at the situation economically for Turkey, it's, it's balanced between East and West. Uh, but as each year goes by, it begins leaning further and further East and, and less so West. And that, that is the ultimate reality that is going to determine Turkey's foreign policy into the future. So it's a waiting game. Until then, they are still going to continue serving Western interests. Uh, you, you just mentioned the, the government's rhetoric regarding Israel, but rhetoric is one thing. Actions is entirely different. And we've seen this for years and years. Uh, every, every episode of violence uh, between Israel and the Palestinians, we hear a condemnation by the government in Turkey, but we see no actions. And actions are all that matter. And so he's, he's saying this to placate the population, the Turkish population, and in, in many ways, they're maintaining their military presence in northern Syria to placate the, the more extreme elements that constitute Erwan's support base. Uh, but also, they, they're still seeking leverage. They're still trying to play both sides. This is, this is very um, in, indicative of Turkey's foreign policy for many years now. And it's just a reality. But this is what Syria, Russia, also China, this is what they have to work with. And they've chosen patience and persistence over trying to radically change things immediately. And you also mentioned Hezbollah, which is uh, a, probably the most important player in this other than IDF and uh, Hamas. Um, what? How have they evolved? Because we really haven't seen Hezbollah engaged in much of a conflict since 2006 when they were incredibly strong. And where we are being led to believe that they've become even stronger in terms of capability and um, just numbers. So how have they evolved for the last almost two decades? And what kind of threat did they um, pose to Israel? We've seen Hezbollah take out the, I also wanted to ask you about this, so I'll just throw it in there. I've seen Hezbollah take out the censors and basically take out Israel's eyes on the border, um, which I think that we have queued up, but... Um, so how has Hezbollah evolved? How What is their strategy? What did you think of uh, Hassan Nasrallah's speeches in regards to military uh, traction? 
All, all very important questions. Uh, Hezbollah, for people who don't know, it's a resist. It's a, leg a very legitimate, genuine resistance organization. Uh, it it expelled Israeli occupation from southern Lebanon. A lot of people say, "Oh, Brian, you know, you're unfair when you compare Hamas and Hezbollah. Hamas is." Uh, uh, under occupation, Hezbollah isn't. Well, they had been, and then they expelled the Israeli occupiers uh, because it is a legitimate, genuine resistance organization. It was uh, it was very strategic-minded. It thought in, in long-term, short-term, and long-term, and it succeeded. It expelled the Israelis, and now it exists as a deterrent against Israeli aggression into uh, again, into Lebanon, where Hezbollah is based. But they, they're not against, they're not entirely against mobilizing their forces to fight elsewhere. We saw Hezbollah mobilize and fight inside Syria. And they understood that the situation in Syria was of utmost importance if Syria were to be uh, overthrown, divided, and destroyed. That would, that would complicate uh, the, the security situation for Lebanon, where Hezbollah is based. So they mobilized their forces. They're also very close to Syria and Iran. And this is something that has been unchanged over, over the decades. Now, uh, Hassan Nasrallah's speech regarding uh, the situation in Gaza, they obviously care about the Palestinian cause. However, Hamas is a problem. Hamas is, uh, it, it stemmed from the Muslim Brotherhood, the Muslim Brotherhood, for people who don't know, was created by the British Empire. It served British uh, interests. And then it, uh, when the U.S. took up the torch of British imperialism in the region, it continued to serve U.S. interests. That, that continued all the way up to the U.S.-engineered Arab Spring in 2011. And ever since, the, Mo the Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas, if people really objectively look at it, have been serving U.S. interests and the interests of their proxies in the region. So Hezbollah is not going to fall on their sword to rush to the rescue of Hamas. And what they could do for the, the Palestinian people if there is no legitimate resistance organization. No, it's, it, you know, it's, it's cold-hearted strategy where they understand that if they got involved right now, they would be destroying themselves. They would be falling into a trap, destroying themselves, and they would be leaving uh, the Lebanese people undefended, which is their, their primary... <coughs> purpose for existing. Uh, so it, it's complicated. And looking at it objectively, it makes a lot of sense. But a lot of people are looking at this emotionally. And they just say, how, how dare Hezbollah not rush to Gaza's aid? Look at where Gaza is on a map. Hezbollah would essentially have to cross through all, all of this Israeli-held territory just to get to Gaza. And some people argue, well, they could put pressure on Israel in the north. Well, just their existence alone forces Israel to maintain a, a true presence along the border with Lebanon. So they're already doing that. Uh, the problem is uh, Hamas, uh, the Palestinian Authority, Israel, the United States, they've created the perfect storm to just erase Gaza off the map. And, and there's little that Hezbollah can do to change that. This is, this is also something that I was thinking about uh... In, in the recent weeks since October the 7th is, <clears throat> it appears that Hamas acted on its own accord. It did not notify uh, Iran and Hezbollah of uh, what was going to happen. Uh, that's at least a lot of the rhetoric around this situation. Sounds like it's coming from that sort of realm. And then I hear a lot of people talking about, oh, you know, why hasn't Hezbollah got more involved in the conflict? It's because, 
like like Brian said, they're not going to fall on their sword, right? Lebanon doesn't need to be destroyed because of what Hamas is doing. Yes, you're sympathetic to the Palestinian cause. You don't want the Palestinians to be erased. You don't want Gaza to be erased. But Hamas acting on their own accord does not automatically mean that Hezbollah or, you know, Turkey or, you know, the Houthis in uh, Yemen are going to act upon that necessarily. And I think what you're seeing in that video we saw on the border is actually Hezbollah taking advantage of the fact that the IDF military presence on the northern border has been reduced uh, due to the ongoing operation in Gaza. And now they're uh, taking advantage of that and erasing all of the, uh, you know, optic work that had been done on the border to uh, monitor Hezbollah. So yeah. I think that that is very I important. I often think like I wish all of these people were with us throughout the whole Ukrainian Russian conflict because then they would have learned a lot of patience because <laughs> we've all been saying for the last year that it's like, why won't they hit the, the decision making centers and, and watching them be like, why won't Hezbollah just go right in? I'm like, oh, you have no idea. You could be yeah, yeah. another year. So um, and then you, Scott mentioned Ansar Allah or the Houthis. Um, we can talk about them a little bit. Um, it was really interesting because I chatted with Scott Ritter and Ray McGovern about it. And I really thought that the uh, drones and missiles, the first attack was a false flag. And I said, and Scott was kind of like, well, you know, it could be. And Ray was like, you never know. But then we find out a couple days later that they've taken full responsibility for them and they'll keep doing it. So what does, what kind of dynamic does this add to the conflict with them now kind of they're hitting the southern, trying to hit the southern border, but we do know that Saudi is blocking those uh, missiles or projectiles, whatever they are. So they're and Jordan has as well. So what 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 kind of layer does does the Answer Allah movement even add to the conflict, given their location and their capabilities? Well, I I think if we look at these attacks again, they're they're strategically irrelevant. They're not they're not going to amount to anything that deters what Israel is doing. The U.S. and Saudi Arabia had been working for years to erase uh, all resistance in Yemen for years and years, a very costly conflict, and they haven't been able to do it. And so there, there really is no nothing additional that the collective Wests and, and their proxies in the region could do to, to address this. So this is something that they themselves are going to have to ignore if they want to focus on whatever it is that they're they're actually trying to do in the region, which seems to be just dividing destroying, blowing up the region, essentially. They, the, the United States saw the region coming together, repairing relations with each other. All of this divide and conquer, they spent decades engineering and uh, and exploiting. This is all evaporating before their eyes. And they, they know the best way to get everyone back on the precipice of war is to just have Israel brutalize the Palestinian people. And there's one, one other thing that I want to I want to address because I see people in the comment section saying this, and I, I've I've heard this criticism often. Brian, you're denying the Palestinian people's agency. Uh, this is a, a very important thing to take a look at when you're talking about the agency of any organization or even country uh, administration running a country. Agency requires independent resources. And when we look at Gaza. Gaza of all places on earth has the least amount of independent resources. Almost everything comes in from the outside by powerful donors and players in the region. And if you add it up, the vector sum is leaning in favor of the US, Israel, and their, 
their allies in the region, including especially Qatar. And this is this is what has been driving Hamas and its actions for years. Uh, there's other countries that talk with Hamas. For example, Russia, China, they don't designate them as a terrorist organization. Iran uh, does attempt to influence the organization. And this is an attempt to pivot Hamas away from the useful proxy that it exists as today towards something more, more resembling a legitimate resistance organization. So we have, we have to be realistic about this. You can't just, oh, everyone has agency, they have agency, and you, you, cannot, you cannot deny them their agency. But actually, yes, you can. If you look at where all the resources come from, that is what determines whether or not they have agency or whether or not they're being manipulated and used by someone else. It's, this is reality. We cannot ignore it when, when we're trying to figure out what's going on. I'd really like for the two of you to maybe have a back and forth discussion about where we are on the ground invasion of Gaza. Um, we The air bombard, their campaign's just kind of erratic and all over the place with no rhyme or reason. They bombed another refugee camp today. But we aren't really getting a very clear picture of what's going on, on the grounds like we were in Ukraine. So maybe you can let, let our listeners know like an up-to-date assessment about what is actually happening uh, inside of Gaza at the hospitals and, and whatnot. Do you want to uh, take well, this? Yeah, well, I, I'll start and you can jump in. I, I just want to point out that uh, a lot of people initially claimed that oh, Hamas set this big trap for the Israeli military and is Israel was going to go in there and it was going to be a death trap for Israel. But in, in reality, if you examine previous military operations that, that have made incursions into Gaza, the Israeli military moves very quickly. They go in, they move quickly. 2008, 2009, cast lead. They actually did cut off northern Gaza and, and encircle Gaza City. And they made a lot of progress into the, the urban environment itself, but they were doing it at a very quick tempo. And when you, when you have, they have limited resources in the short term. In the long term, if they are able to pace themselves, they're able to sustain their military operations. That's what they're doing right now. Uh, they're, they're going much slower than they have previously. This operation already is, is longer than Operation Cast Lead in 2008-2009. They have completely encircled Gaza City. They've moved up and down the coast with the Mediterranean. It is completely encircled by Israeli forces, and now they're tightening this encirclement. They're just leveling everything. They're going into these hospitals. They're using Hamas as a pretext. If, if Israel wanted to get rid of Hamas, they should not have Put them into power in the first place. So this this is completely disingenuous. That the idea that they're doing this operation to get rid to address Hamas. No, they aren't. They're using Hamas as a pretext to simply erase Gaza, starting with Gaza City. That is what they're doing. And if they the, the only limit right now is political pressure. If they ignore political pressure to stop militarily, they almost certainly will succeed in erasing at least northern Gaza. Uh, they're going into these hospitals. They're bombing everything. They're making it unlivable deliberately to to compel the population in northern Gaza to just leave. And we'll see a lot of people just doing that. Hamas does not have the military power to repel this. The, the best that Hamas and other militant groups uh, in northern Gaza could do is just try to draw it out for as long as possible and try to push Israel up against the limits uh, logistically and politically. 
uh, that might limit their military operation or might compel them to call it off prematurely. That That's the best that they can do. And right now, it, it looks like Israel has paced themselves in a way that, that will prevent that that from happening. But we just have to wait and, and see. But it, you know, just... And, uh, you know, Scott, you could tell me uh, what you think about this. The timing of Hamas's raids into Israel, it was, it was perfectly timed almost to the day when the U.S. needed the world to stop looking at Ukraine. The, the offensive was officially called off, essentially an operational pause is calling off the offensive, admitting that it was a failure. And then we just watched uh, everyone admitting that Ukraine was essentially defeated. And this was just a, a matter of time before everything falls apart. And oops, suddenly we have this Hamas raid and all attention shifted from Ukraine to Gaza. It's just too much, too, too, too much of a coincidence. And then it was a it was a pretext handed to Israel on a silver platter to just erase Gaza, which is what the, the hardliners running Israel is Israeli foreign policy right now. This is all that they have dreamed of. It's also the perfect provocation put pressure on everyone in the region to somehow get involved and again transform the region from moving toward peace and cooperation back to the divide and conquer the US has has engineered for decades. Yeah, the uh specifically the timing was very curious. Uh if anybody knows me, they know that I cover uh the Ukraine conflict in in extreme depth uh like Brian does, but Brian does a little bit more of everything than I do. Um <clears throat> and when it comes to the timing of this attack, like Brian said, it came right at the end of the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which was objectively a failure, right? There, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. They didn't accomplish any of their goals. They lost a ton of manpower and so on. So things are getting really bad in Ukraine. Western support for Ukraine is beginning to die. And politically, the U.S. needed a distraction. And what better distraction than Israel? I mean, to the American public we care more about Israel than we do about our own country for some reason. It's, it's unbelievable. These politicians are all on board. Everybody is just, you know, going for it. So um, the timing was highly coincidental um, and the effectiveness of the attack, considering that uh, Israel has eyes on Gaza 24 uh, seven was either completely embarrassing or, uh, turned, you know, turned an eye to it when it was happening. Um, I'm not going to say it was necessarily a false flag. You know, I'm not, I don't, I don't know. I don't have any evidence of any of that. So I'm not going to go into that, but the timing was perfect for the United States to capitalize on it. And I've said for a long time that the United States, they did this in Ukraine. They did it in Syria. They do it all over the place. They create chaos and then try to capitalize on that chaos. And when it, you know, when it, it's just so perfect, it works for the U.S. so perfectly, and it works for their proxy, Israel. You know, they're achieving their goal. They want Gaza gone. It's a it's a thorn in their side. They're doing it now. Um, on the ground, strategically, they are doing what everybody kind of expected the Russians to do when they went in, and that is just level everything, uh, you know, reduce infrastructure, make it so the civilian population is starving and, you know, dying of dysentery. And then you go in on the ground when they're, you know, the civilian population is, is exhausted and the military can't work around or, you know, the Hamas can't work around the civilians and use them to their advantage and all of that. Um, and 
on top of that, with the op operation in northern Gaza coming to an end, an operation in southern Gaza is about to begin. There's a lot of rumors going around right now. I think it was the New York Times or uh, Reuters was talking about how uh, the Israelis are about to begin their southern operation, which basically means that Gaza is going to cease to exist. Uh, the genocide of Gaza, the displacement of all the Palestinian people is going to continue. Um, <clears throat> and really, who benefits from that? Uh, does Hamas benefit from that? Not really. Hamas will probably cease to exist as an organization, uh, you know, in, in what they have built since 2006 in Gaza. And whatever comes after that is going to be probably rather controlled by the Israeli government. Um, the southern operation is going to be the, the one that I think is going to put a lot of pressure on Israel politically. Uh, and the United States. I don't think that the U.S. is fully on board with how Israel is running the operation, how uh, liberal they're being with their JDAM usage in uh, Gaza. For those of you who don't know, JDAM is a guided bomb. Uh, it's what you've been seeing fall on Gaza day after day. Uh, they hit hospitals, they hit refugee camps, they drop bombs on you know 100 civilians to kill one Hamas leader. Uh, the collateral damage is not considered at all. Uh, the just and just for those who are paying attention, uh, depending on what numbers you believe, uh, the death toll inside of Gaza, uh, civilian death toll, has far surpassed what it is in Ukraine, um, and the child death toll is unbelievably high. It's 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 crazy. Gaza is a very very young city, and uh, there are a lot of kids dying. So it's it's pretty horrible. And I think that has kind of soured uh, the world against the U.S. just outside of, um, you know, Israel and uh, the United States. Everybody's kind of looking at this. You have the European uh, partners of the United States that are talking about how um, this campaign has been brutal. Uh, I mean, everybody can see it. Hamas does an excellent job of getting every single body onto camera um, and it really kind of puts a, a, you know, a blanket over the U.S. talking about how Russia is being so cruel and brutal in Ukraine and, you know, they're a terrorist state and all this. And then you have a, a U.S. proxy in Israel who has surpassed 600 days of casualties on both sides in Ukraine in less than a month in Gaza. I mean, that is significant. Um, I think it gives a lot more... Uh, space to other uh, countries in the region to do uh, to commit atrocities, um, just because that's how that's going to end up going. You know, Israel can do it. Why can't we do it sort of thing? And uh, nobody in the U.S. seems to care really about the atrocities. So uh, I think it's going to continue. I think that Gaza is going to basically be wiped off the map. And uh, I don't expect uh, Iran or uh, Hezbollah or any of the uh, militias to get involved. I think the risk is far too high uh, to Iran to get involved, especially because they weren't even in, you know, included in the planning, uh, in my personal opinion. Um, and Iran is not going to sacrifice its future, which is looking brighter and brighter with every passing day. Uh, for a wider conflict in the region to save uh, Hamas, which they don't really particularly care about, and the Palestinian people who, while they do care about the Palestinian people, they can't 
charge down there and save them. Like Brian said, you know, there's, there's a, there's a great distance between um, both sides. So Hezbollah is taking advantage of the distraction on the border, uh, taking out, um, you know, eyes and ears. And then Iran is benefiting from this through sanction relief and uh, frozen assets being uh, possibly returned in the near future. Um, I, I don't, it's, it's really just a shame that this is happening and I can't believe, and I, I honestly can't believe that um, people can't see what's going on. I mean, it's, it's pretty horrific. Um, Brian, do you, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, well, I, I, I will just say, if you looked at what's happening in the region before October 7th and Hamas decided to carry out these raids, uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia repairing their ties and talking to each other. That was that was a major development. I don't think people understand how major of a development that is. That was one of the main uh, fault lines the U.S. had been using to divide and control the region. And now it was gone. It was out of their control. Uh, so they were repairing their relations. Syria was normalizing its relationship with, with the Arab world. They're also now talking with Turkey. And people have to remember, uh, because... There was also a process of normalization between Israel and the rest of the region. People said, well, if you normalize with Israel, you're normalizing the occupation. Well, look look at Syria. They're normalizing their relationship with the Arab world and Turkey, uh, even though they still have territory that is being occupied, including by Turkey. And they're still fighting militants who are primarily being sponsored and armed by elements across the Arab world. Normalization does not mean accepting all of these injustices, it's its the first step toward addressing these injustices and resolving these conflicts and crises. And so that was what was going on in the region. The best way to just blow all of that up is, again, to lay waste to the Palestinian people. It is a highly divisive and emotional topic, especially in the region. If you look at all the, gov uh, all the countries in the region, there's these protests uh, in the streets some of these protests are going to obviously involve elements connected to the Muslim Brotherhood and other extremist groups that the U.S. uses to divide and control the region. They're going to put pressure on the on the governments in the region to to act. And if they don't, it may cause instability inside these countries themselves. Very similar to what happened during the, the Arab Spring, which, again, was a U.S. engineered region wide destabilization. Uh, so. Uh, the, the, the Israeli brutality, I think, is part of the plan. The brutality against the Palestinian people, that is part of the plan. That is one of the most essential ingredients for what the U.S. is trying to, to cook up in the region right now, which is instability, political instability, uh, and diplomatic instability. Although I would say that in a way they're failing. We just saw uh, Syria, the Syrian president, uh, Iranian representatives, all in Saudi Arabia, they're all talking to each other in Saudi Arabia with the Saudis and others across the Arab world. So the idea that this was going to undo uh, the the repairing of relations that has been happening, that that is not materialized. And the fact that the West might do something that doesn't work, I mean, look at their proxy war in Ukraine. Everything they're doing is desperate, dangerous, and unlikely to succeed but it's just a matter of how much death and destruction they will cause while they try all of these different options. So they've been destroying Europe, Eastern Europe, the rest of Europe in their proxy war with Russia and Ukraine. Now they're trying to destroy the Middle East uh, by encouraging Israel to erase Gaza. And 
they're going to start stirring things up here in Asia Pacific, where I am based. And I just want people to realize if if the process of normalization and stabilization continued in the Middle East, eventually it would set the, the stage for a two-state solution, which the current administration in Israel did not want. And so this was like their last desperate gambit to just erase Gaza entirely. So that in the future, even if things do normalize, there is no there is no Gaza to be part of the two-state solution. I don't know if they're going to succeed in that that part or not, uh, but that's that's what they're going for. And so again, like you say, Scott, people need to see this for what it is, and they need to understand the the, the reality. There are certain wars that you cannot fight and win. Uh, people were, all, you know, they they like my analysis when I talk about Ukraine because Russia is winning, and they want to see Russia win. Although there had been certain junctures, the withdrawal from Kherson city, for example, where people were upset that I was saying these things, but it was reality. It was what was happening on the ground. And now we see very unpleasant things taking place in in Gaza. Tragic. It's a hu- humanitarian catastrophe. It is genocide. They're deliberately erasing a, a certain people from a certain area on the map. That is the definition of genocide. Uh, but what can be done to stop it? You know, uh, Israel is a nuclear arms proxy of the U.S. The U.S. itself is armed with nuclear weapons. They're using this as a as an opportunity to expand the U.S. military footprint in the region, which has been deteriorating over time. Now they're they're using this as an opportunity to, to bulk it up. So this is what's happening. So every, every once in a while, you're going to have major setbacks. This is going to be a major setback. Well, you both, you guys said so many things. Now I'm like, I should have written them down. But anyway, um, so Scott mentioned a few times that Gaza will be most like, and I think you agreed, Brian, that Gaza will most likely cease to exist. But I'm kind of wondering what that, what a world like that looks like. And I also wanted to explore, I'm glad Brian brought it up, but that uh, you talked, you mentioned Ukraine, Russia, and how the United States has lost in that theater. And I've always, and, and, and I think that Palestine, Israel, forgive me, but is a much popular or more well-known conflict than Ukraine and Russia. So a lot of people kind of missed out on the interconnectedness of these two conflicts. And then you went as far as to mention this, uh, the South China Sea, which I look at as front number three. I think that people look at Israel and the Middle East conflict as, oh, this is the culmination of everything. This is an isolated incident, but it's going right in line with Russia, Ukraine. So we've already said, and I agree that the counteroffensive is over. Uh, United States has lost in that theater. It's finished. If a, if what you're saying, Gaza's wiped off the map, that's a victory for Israel and United States. What happens after that? I don't foresee a successful two-state solution, just including the West Bank, and I'd like to not discuss the two-state solution. Anyway, I'm talking about like regionally. How does that look? Because in my uh, gut feeling is that the Middle East can't progress into BRICS. They can't keep going with the Arab League with the presence of Israel in the region. And just they'll, they'll, they won't stop at Gaza. Yeah, well, I mean, this is this is the thing. Uh, people find it very hard to believe. But in Israel, even right now, there are political parties. There are segments of the population that want a two-state solution uh, they want to coexist in the region. They want to pursue policies that actually coincide with the the people living in Israel's best interests. The current administration, just like the the client regime in Ukraine, is on a path towards self-destruction. 
they make decisions that do not coincide with Israel's self-preservation, its prosperity as a, as a nation state, uh, looking at its trade. It, it's in the Middle East, but its closest trade partners are all in Europe and the United States. That, that makes no sense. And that only happens when you have an a utterly artificial uh, system, ecosystem set up. Where they, they are a proxy of the U.S., and uh, previously British imperial ambitions in the region. And that's what it exists as. It's not, it's not a fully functioning nation state. It's more like a forward operating base. And just like a forward operating base during a conflict, you're not thinking about its preservation at all costs. You're using it as a one of many pawns um, on the game board. And you mentioned how uh, Ukraine, Israel, say Taiwan or now increasingly the Philippines here in Asia, how all of these are, these are proxies, it's all interconnected to the U.S. Uh, plan to try to reassert their hegemony over the planet versus this emerging multipolarism that's taking shape. People find it hard to believe, but if, if the Arab world and, and, there, and others in the region, Turkey, Iran, and then by extension, Russia and China, if they're able to contain this this atrocity that Israel is carrying out with full U.S. backing, you know, again, people have to remember at, at any point if the U.S. really wanted to make good on their rhetoric about uh, Israel should show restraint, stop sending them weapons. Uh, almost all the weapons that they're using right now uh, against the Palestinian people are coming in from the United States. So that you know, if they wanted to exercise some leverage over Israel. They could turn on and off the the weapon spigot, but they won't because this is this is what they want. They just want to present themselves as rational and reasonable to the world, while all along they know they'll benefit from this. The the more chaos they create, just as Scott said, the more chaos they'll have to exploit and and use to shape reshape the region. Uh, so again, as hard as people find it to believe, Israel could eventually in the future coexist with the rest of the region. The problem isn't actually in Israel. The problem is in Washington. And if you're able to minimize the influence that Washington exerts on Israel, you can create alternatives for all, uh, different groups inside Israel to, to begin working with people in the region rather than maintaining this artificial bridge to the U.S. and Europe. And, and that includes a process of normalization. And we see Russia and China doing the exact same thing to many other countries around the world. I, I, I keep going back to Turkey. It's a NATO member, but look at how they're pivoting away from the West toward the East, despite being a NATO member. Look, look at that process and look at how much both uh, Russia and China have had to tolerate that Turkey had been involved in the Uyghurs in Xinjiang in Western China. Uh, that, that movement had been backed partially by uh, Turkey and also Saudi Arabia. Uh, and remember, Saudi Arabia had been helping sponsor the proxy war in Syria that was killing Russian soldiers. But look at how Russia and China have been trying to build better relationships with both Turkey and Saudi Arabia and how it's paying off now. That same process can take place regarding Israel. Again, people have to separate their emotions. Uh, there's a lot of people who say, I don't want a two-state solution because I hate Israel and I don't want Israel to exist. Well, is, is that realistic? Because Israel has nuclear weapons, they have a powerful military, and right now they have the full backing of the United States. Under what, what scenario do people imagine Israel will 
cease to exist. I really can't see any any possible scenario where that, that will happen. But I can see a possible scenario where a two-state solution is possible. Uh, that's what Russia and China want. That's what the international community demand. That's what international law demands. And I think that there are steps toward that. But right now, there are extremists running Israel, just like you have extremists running Ukraine. And as long as that that is the reality, then this, this conflict will persist. Just like Russia is changing facts on the ground, not, not just in Ukraine itself, but in, in the region uh, regarding Europe, their, their ability to weather sanctions and the sanctions backfiring in the face of, of all of Europe and the US, uh, they will be able to change that reality. Eventually, the, the, the client regime in Kiev is not going to be sustainable. The same goes for Israel. It is unsustainable. U.S. hegemony around the globe is not sustainable. That's why we see these desperate and dangerous options being exercised by the U.S. So it's, it's, a, it's a matter of time, and it requires patience. Russia and China have that patience. Ordinary people watching this, they, they do not. And I understand why they do not. It's human nature. But if we want to talk about realistically what's going to happen, we have to think in, in the longer term. And the game of patience that Russia and China and other nations in the region are, are going to use to their advantage. Did Scott want to add to that? Yeah, I was just going to say that that is one thing that I think people miss a lot in their analysis of this conflict is the fact that Israel has nuclear weapons, right? So, you know, any action by Iran, if successful, will be met with a nuclear response. I mean, if the fate of the Israeli state is at risk, they will use nuclear weapons. So the the destruction of the Israeli state is really not re the way to go about it. Um, I think, and and Brian had alluded the, to the, alluded to this, but the the funny thing about all of these conflicts that we're seeing right now, Ukraine and Israel, is the fact that if the governments were just pragmatic in nature and did what was right for their own people. They would not have to be pro-Russian. They would not have to be pro-United States. They would not have to be puppets. They could just be pragmatic and peace would most likely exist. You know, if if the U.S. wasn't in control of Ukrainian politics right now, there would not be a war in Ukraine. And that doesn't necessarily mean that Russia is in charge of, you know, the politics in Ukraine, but just a pragmatic leadership in both of these countries would solve so many of these issues. And uh, they just don't exist right now. And I think that the, the best thing that can happen for either of these regions is just regime change. And it doesn't have to be violent regime change. It doesn't have to be uh, counter regime change, uh, you know, to a client state of Russia or whoever in the Middle East, but just a regime change to a pragmatic regime. I, and, that, and that's all I wanted to add. I do want to um, circle back to the title because we're still in the Middle East before we maybe pivot over to Southeast Asia. Um, do you think that this, that the, well, clearly things are completely out of control. I believe that Israel is acting like a total rogue state. But um, do you think that the United States is losing control over the Middle East? Will it ultimately lose control over the Middle East? And does it have to use lose control over the Middle East in order to pivot to Southeast Asia? Or do you think they want to make sure that they still have their strength and footholds in that region before pivoting to Southeast Asia? Because what we're seeing now is that we, despite Janet Yellen's um, statements, is that we can't really support 
two war fronts in Ukraine and Israel at the same time. And to even think of bringing China into the mix is just, it, it's Looney Tunes to me. So is, is this just um, an insane state kind of in its death spiral or and, and it's lost control over the Middle East, or is it just trying to assert itself back in the Middle East before it takes that ultimate pivot to Southeast Asia? Well, if you're watching two people playing chess and one of the players gets up and flips the board over, I mean, that there's your answer. They were losing and they, they didn't want it to run its full course. So their answer is to uh, have an emotional outburst and flip the board over. And that is essentially what the U.S. is doing. Unfortunately, uh, instead of flipping a board over and, you know, uh, that being that, they're, you know, they're destroying entire nations. They're destabilizing entire regions of the planet. They're they're just trying to uh, wreck and roll back all the progress multipolarism is having. And they think that somehow they may create the opportunity to, to reassert themselves globally, which is just not ever going to happen. And I think it's important to look at Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, Philippines. You have to look at it all together. The U.S., their primary problem is China, the rise of China. They understand in order to isolate China, they have to do something about the reemergence of Russia. Uh, Russia and China working together, there's nothing the U.S. can do about that. They could get uh, Russia off the game board, then they can just work on China alone. They can uh, isolate and, and try to undermine, destabilize China itself. So that's why they're busy with uh, Russia through Ukraine. They've been trying to encircle and contain Russia and China. This has been a, a joint project. And of course, the Middle East, if you look at a map of Russia, China, and the Middle East, it's, it's Eurasia. They're, they're trying to encircle, contain, and control all of Eurasia. So th these are all interconnected. And the success of one depends on the success of the other. If they fail in Ukraine, they even openly say this. If we fail in Ukraine, then this is going to empower China <laughs> all the way on the other side of the planet. But in a way, they're right, because it's not really about Russia or China creating some sort of problem. It's about this goal of the U.S. to contain both Russia and China. If they fail in Ukraine and Taiwan is looking at the fate of Ukraine, it's just being fed feet first into, into the wood chipper, a proxy war. And they're like, are we going to be the next one to, to suffer that fate? And should we keep going down this path? Uh, it's going to make them think twice. And it's going to it's going to undermine the, the trust and the faith and the cooperation of others in the region that would have to facilitate some sort of proxy war between the U.S. and China over, say, Taiwan or, or the Philippines. And you even see here in the region, here in Asia, you see a lot of countries who are... You know, they're playing both sides, but they're they're not enthusiastic about joining some sort of united front against China led led by the U.S. I mean, the enthusiasm for that is quickly fading, and it's in part because of the failure uh, in Ukraine. Maybe the U.S. is thinking, well, look, if we can just back Israel and they erase Gaza off the map and we demonstrate to the world what we're capable of doing, the brutality that we're capable of, the fate that people that get in our way will suffer then maybe this will try to balance out that that equation, uh, try to balance out our failure in Ukraine with this success in the Middle East. And this isn't the first time they've they've done things like this. When they were failing in Vietnam, they began carpet bombing Cambodia and Laos, and and they were 
doing this as a, a demonstration to the world that we, we're still powerful, even though we're losing this war, we're still powerful and we should still be feared. And it's this is the mentality that the, the U.S. Uh, foreign policy establishment has maintained for decades and decades. It has nothing to do with who is in the White House or who is in Congress. People who determine U.S. foreign policy are unelected. Uh, foreign policy uh, makers, they are in these think tanks funded by corporations and it is an unelected, continuous process. That's why you see con continuity of agenda, no matter who the American people try to vote in or vote out. It, it keeps moving on. And this is their mentality, the supremacist mentality, the, the mentality of a bully who, okay, yes, they use physical force to bully others, but it's also the, the psychology of fear. Uh, so they don't have to punch everyone in the face. They just make an example out of one person and that gets everyone else in line. This is how the U.S. runs its foreign policy on a global scale. Uh, Scott, did you want to add to that before we make our pivot to Southeast Asia? I just, yeah, and this is actually a good pivot point. I was going to ask Brian, Brian, do you think that, uh, you know, Ukraine is, I'm just going to be blunt about this, Ukraine is European and white. Uh, Israel is close to home uh, for a lot of the United States, a lot of the evangelicals, especially. There's a lot of support for Israel. Uh, do you see anything on the scale or scope of Israel or Ukraine ever happening in Southeast Asia? Because I just don't see the U.S. population having the patience to support any of that, especially after Ukraine and what has happened in Israel. And I, I'm just curious, do you think that there's going to be a, a, a cultural and geographical barrier there that's going to prevent the, the same sort of thing happening in, the, in Southeast Asia? Uh, that's a really good question. And I, I think you're actually onto something that you will not see the support for, say, Taiwan or the Philippines that you would see for uh, a relatively white Ukraine. I mean, they're Slavs and, and people in the West really think Slavs are, are subhuman, but that's beside the point. Superficially, they kind of look white. So mm -hmm. you will see much more support for Ukraine than you will for, say, Taiwan or the Philippines. However, the thing that will balance that out or even overpower that is the fact that the opponent, the adversary is China, this non-white nation that is is irreversibly going to surpass not just the U.S., but the collective West, the entire G7, they will they will surpass the entire G7. They're non-white, and this is something that will allow uh, the Western governments to to drag their population along because there is still a lot of racism across the U.S., across Europe, and uh, it will be a downhill battle to convince them we need to kill these non-white Chinese before they surpass us and, and take over the world. And you already see the rhetoric regarding everything in Asia built on top of that. It's not about who we want to save. It's about who we want to kill. So it's it's kind of inverting it. We want to save these, these uh, white-looking Israelis against these horrible Arabs in the Middle East. Now they're flipping it around. We have to stop these horrible uh, non-white Chinese uh, before they take over the whole world, including where we live. And so this is the, this is the propaganda angle that they're going to, to use that they are using right now. And that will allow them to overcome the, the indifference people will almost certainly have regarding Taiwan or the Philippines. Well, I think you both brought up really good points. And this is why I agree with both. This is why um, Scott said that they won't be supporting Taiwan and they won't. Um, but that also plays into their hands. Like you said, Brian, that it will 
kind of like our two forever wars. We didn't have, we don't see ourselves in Afghanis or Iraqis or Iranians. So we don't, there's no real connection or pity there. And the same thing will happen to Taiwan. And that'll be um, actually advantageous to the United States because then they'll just be able to kind of do whatever they want. Um, so in terms of uh, Taiwan, China, the Vincent did leave port recently. And I think the Reagan forward deployed for our listeners that don't know um, the United States Navy um, maintains a fleet at San Diego, and they also maintain a forward deployed aircraft carrier in Japan, uh, the United States, uh, the USS Reagan. And um, right now, I believe that both of them are in the water, Reagan and the Vincent in the general area. We have Xi in San Francisco, um, Joe Biden kind of acting like Joe Biden. Um, and But before Xi even got there, which I thought was really interesting, um, is that in the United States, our press actually said that Xi was coming so we could help fix his crumbling economy. <laughs> what do you, sorry. <laughs> sorry. They did. They said that in the newspaper. I read it. Um, so what do you think of Xi's visit? Which, I mean, he came to San Francisco. The whole thing is just such a joke that they came to San Francisco. They have to, like, power wash the whole city. Why, yeah, why did they choose San Francisco? I have no. I think where could they? Where could they go? It's such like, a it's such a shithole. I just don't understand. Well, I think maybe because they have a large uh, Chinese population, maybe, um, and because go to of Seattle their, or Portland, I don't. Know. I would have if I, people would have came to Seattle. That would have been great. I would have. Yeah. Been there. But what do you think okay. about his visit? What does it even mean? I didn't really even read the minutes from it. I kind of just saw some like videos and was like, I don't think I need to pay attention to that. What happened during the visit? Does it change anything? Um, what was the point even? Well, I, I will say this. The U.S. always does this right before they get, uh, right before they drive the dagger in deepest. They always pretend that they're interested in some sort of diplomacy, repairing ties with uh, their adversaries. And this is all while at the same time they are they're working toward war, either directly or by proxy. And this is no exception. As they were inviting President Xi Jinping from China to this APEC meeting in San Francisco, they are militarizing the Philippines. They have tens of thousands of troops already in South Korea and Japan. Uh, as you say, they, they have these warships constantly plying the waters of the South China Sea doing these freedom of, exer uh, freedom of navigation exercises. They're flying their planes right off uh, the Chinese coast. And they're arming Taiwan, which according to the U.S. State Department's official policy, is part of China. It's an island province of China. It's recognized as such by the One China policy the U.S. and most of the world maintains. It's recognized as part of China under international law. And yet they're arming what is essentially a separatist movement on the island province of Taiwan. The U.S. also has a small but growing contingent of U.S. troops on the island province of Taiwan. It is essentially a de facto U.S. occupation of Chinese territory. And so all while they're continuing to do this, and they didn't, they didn't stop it, put it on pause or reverse it as a sign of good faith. They just continue doing this at an accelerated uh, pace. And then they invite President Xi Jinping to the United States for this visit. They know eventually China is going to react to these provocations. And then they will say, see, we told you China wants war. We wanted diplomacy. We even invited the president of China to California, despite all of our differences, despite 
Xi Jinping being a dictator, because I don't know if you saw it, but President Biden did call President Xi Jinping a dictator again, right after his meeting. They had a meeting. And then right after that, during a press conference, they said, do you think President Xi Jinping's a dictator? And he's like, yes, he's a dictator because he runs a communist country that's different than ours. So that that equals dictatorship, uh, which, by the way, is completely scatterbrained, makes absolutely no sense. But that's what he said. And so this is this is what the U.S. always does. Nobody nobody is falling for this. Even in the general pub, the general public is starting to wake up to this. The Chinese leadership is far too pragmatic to believe any of this. President Xi Jinping went to California, not because they thought any progress would be made. They almost certainly knew none would be made, but they're they're doing it because they want to show that they are also committed to diplomacy. They want the world to know that it's the U.S. provoking this problem. I mean, it's obvious. The U.S. troops surrounding China, thousands and thousands of miles away from U.S. shores. Who Who's creating the problem here? It's, it's obviously not China. And uh, it's, it gets worse when you read U.S. Uh, foreign policy think tank documents where they admit the Chinese military is solely designed and being built to defend China, Chinese territory, that they don't have the ability to move troops all around the world like the U.S. And they gloat about how the U.S. has this advantage over China. So they're admitting that China is not a threat to the United States, not its actual national security. The only thing that it's a threat to is American impunity around the globe, its ability to do whatever it wants, wherever it wants. That's what they're panicking about, that they won't have the ability to do this because their entire economy is built on top of this decades-long, some can argue generations-long imperialism, essentially. The whole system is going to collapse if they're not able to perpetually expand this. So this is what they're worried about. And, and realistically, what the U.S. should do is transform their system, uh, find a rational place for the United States among a multipolar world, rather than insisting on imposing itself on the world, which it cannot do. It is unsustainable. It is not possible. They will fail. And the only question is, how much death and destruction will be caused before they fail? And that is the calculus Russia and China are considering. What can we do to blunt the death and destruction the U.S. will cause as it throws this fit before before it loses control over the planet. And so that's what they're doing. That's why China exercises infinite patience regarding Taiwan. If it was the other way around, if China was putting Chinese troops on Catalina Island off of the California coast, it would, it would be instantly war. If China even talked about it, if they were even sailing warships close to Catalina Island, it would be war. Uh, and yet, when it's the other way around, China exercises this infinite patience because they know time is on their side. They know the U.S. is desperate and they know all they have to do is weather the, the tantrum that they're throwing. And then a multi-world, uh, a multipolar world will come into shape. I think you're also beginning to see uh, just how unqualified and inefficient the U.S. government is, uh, the U.S. leadership right now, the current administration. Uh, Brian mentioned the uh, post-meeting uh, interview that Biden uh, undertook where he called G a dictator. Um, and you could physically watch Blinken die a little bit inside when that happened. He, he Everybody who was sitting there, the one guy was like, like he did that. Everybody was just like, God damn it, dude, because they don't have control over Biden's mouth and he has to be there. 
but he's not in control at all. And you can tell because the foreign policy doesn't match uh, Biden's statements. Uh, I mean, the outwardly exposed foreign policy, the secret foreign policy actually really does follow Biden's mouth. Um, that, you know, the U.S. is going to look for a conflict with China in the future. They are their adversary that they are looking at across the Pacific. That is the direction that the U.S. is going. They've already openly stated this, basically. Um, so I really think that this visit really showed it, it, it. It's it's very reminiscent of the end of the Soviet Union, in my personal opinion. Uh, you know, they come in there. They have to clean up the streets to present uh, nice for a foreign leader. The foreign leader comes in. They fumble the whole meeting. Um, obviously nothing was going to come out of it. I don't think anybody expected anything to come out of it, but even then they still found a way to, you know, mess it up. And then on top of that, they make their, the entire administration look foolish. China goes back. They look like the mature adults and, uh, that's that. So I, I really think it's a foreshadowing of what is to come, uh, for the U S in the near future for sure. Well, I mean, it's been an hour. I know Scott said he could only give me an hour. So I just want to, for our wrap question, I guess I want to ask each of you, maybe if you could give each conflict maybe two minutes talking about the Ukrainian theater, the Iranian Middle East theater, and then the Southeast Asia theater, because you kind of both alluded to that you didn't you believed that there was no way that the Israel would cease to exist. But I'm just not understanding how you United States can lose in both Ukraine and Southeast Asia with Israel staying intact. So I'm wondering how these three kind of fronts come to culminate and come to a conclusion. Okay, so Ukraine uh, is obviously a proxy war. Again, the U.S. installed the client regime into power to steer it into the self-destructive proxy war. And the, the, the collective West is losing this proxy war. The five-month offensive was a complete failure. Ukraine burned through an entire army's worth of men and equipment, also ammunition, and the West is demonstrably out of everything. They have no ability to reconstitute Ukrainian forces. So now it's just a matter, a matter of time. Russia is going to continue pushing. Their military industrial output continues to grow. Their military power increases, and they're going to achieve whatever objectives they, they have in Ukraine. That is definitely going to happen. And it's just a matter of what those objectives are and how long it takes Russia to do this. At the same time, we've seen Russia go out of its way not to burn bridges with, with Europe. They understand that Europe is uh, politically captured by the U.S., by U.S. interests. They're not making rational decisions. Uh, but despite that, Europe is, is almost eagerly destroying themselves, uh, laying waste to their economy, their society, their political system, their credibility. And yet R Russia continues to try to keep bridges open to them. So sometime, some point in the future when this is all over, they can begin building ties back up again. Once, once Europe crawls out from under the shadow of US hegemony, that will be possible as hard as it is to believe. And uh, this was actually what was happening before the U.S. provoked the conflict in Ukraine. Germany was building the Nord Stream 2 pipeline with Russia. The, the region was talking about the Belt and Road Initiative with China. And the U.S. created a conflict to try to reset the board, get Europe back under its control, and redraw the lines. And, uh, but, but they're going to fail. They're going to fail because their, their proxy war is unsustainable. It's unwinnable. Move to the Middle East. 
they're doing the exact same thing with Israel. Uh, they're already starting to lose a lot of their, their other proxies. Saudi Arabia, for example, is pivoting away. Turkey more slowly is pivoting away, but is pivoting nonetheless. And uh, Israel as it exists today is unsustainable. That, that Israel as it exists today will not exist in the future. But there is a possibility that the, the political factions that are more reasonable, that do care about their own interests, their own self-preservation, they will come into power and they will create a, a different Israel that can coexist in the region. And, and the problem is right now you have extremists on both sides obstructing that. Hamas is controlled opposition, the Netanyahu administration as the, the ultimate, the uber U.S. client regime. I know a lot of people say Israel controls the U.S. Uh, G- GDP, military power, everything, when you, when you add it up, it makes absolutely no sense. It is the uber proxy regime, uh, but its days are also numbered, which is why you see this, this desperate gambit. They're, they're putting all their money on this move to erase Gaza. Uh, look at, but again, look at Iran and then by extension, Russia and China, they are exercising patience and restraint in the region. They know the U.S. is lashing out and they know all they have to do is weather this because time is on their side. Then move to Asia Pacific uh, not not just Southeast Asia, the South China Sea, but also South Korea, Japan. If you look at the the trade of all of these countries, the U.S. wants to bring into a united front against China. Their largest trade partner is China. So so they're trying to convince these countries to stir up trouble with their most important economic partner in the region. For countries like the Philippines or say say Thailand or Myanmar, China is their best chance at building modern world-class infrastructure. And a lot of countries are partnering with China to build this infrastructure under construction already. They convinced the Philippines to cancel these projects, but that will be at the detriment of of the Philippines, the the people, their best interests. It is also unsustainable. China knows time is on their side and all they have to do is weather these provocations that the U.S. is, is, is trying to ignite the region with. And uh, we see elections coming up in Taiwan and we see the U.S. continuing to make moves. But if you look at the if you look at the vector sum, the U.S. is depleting itself militarily, diplomatically, in terms of credibility, politically, everything. It is wearing itself out, trying to reassert itself over the entire planet. The world is a different place than it was decades ago. Decades ago, it really wasn't possible for the U.S. to do what it's trying to do. Now, more than ever, it is impossible, and yet they're going to continue to do it. So the best move for Russia, China, the the multipolar world together is to just wait this out, try to minimize the death and destruction as much as possible. Some battles you can fight and win, some you cannot. You have to accept that and think about the long-term, think about the long-term picture. Think about the Middle East. People are saying, let's Let's all wage war on nuclear armed Israel and America to save Gaza. You will ignite a conflict that will kill millions more people than than are are suffering and dying right now in in Gaza. It's just it's cold blooded. But that is a calculation. People in power with tens of millions of people, they're responsible for. These are the decisions that they have to make. So uh, looking at it in these terms, that I think that is how. I know that's more than two minutes for each, each but I, I think overall that is the, the the big picture. If Scott could do the same, go ahead. Yeah, so I'll just start with Ukraine because uh, that's kind of where all this started. Uh, I think that the U.S. was basically looking uh, at the clock and realizing that they did not have a lot of time left. Um, you know, China's on the rise. Uh, Russia-China alliance would be just tragic for the U.S.'s global strategic positioning. 
So they decided uh, to do the same thing that they did in the uh, 60s and 70s. And that is to try to separate China, pull China into the U.S., absorb it a little bit more, just separate them and keep them apart. Um, and that's what this Ukraine project was about. Uh, it started uh, in, what, 2011, something like that. Obviously, 2014 was the uh, hot point where the Maidan uh, crisis happened. Uh, and then once Russia committed to the conflict, uh, either Ukraine was going to solve the issue in the Donbass and then, uh, you know, end up joining the EU and NATO, and then Russia would become even more isolated uh, and economically suffocated uh, by the U.S. and its proxies in Europe. Um, and when Russia went in to prevent that from happening, uh, the goal was to sanction Russia into submission uh, one way or the other, cause regime change, and through that, uh, separate Russia and China. Uh, by June 2022, I think most everybody could see very clearly that the sanctions packages had failed. Um, after 2014, uh, you know, Russia got a light taste of sanctions and basically bolstered their economy against that. I think the Russian economy performed better than anybody expected in the U.S. and even in Russia. Um, and once that failed, everything since, you know, Kherson and Kharkov, I think that that gave uh, a little bit of false hope uh, to the West and what Ukraine could do and the damage it could do to Russia. Um, and so it's been a little bit of a desperation, you know, keep sending piecemeal, piecemeal packages, financial aid, keep this going as long as possible, try to degrade the Russians, possibly cause some political uh, issues inside of Russia and then uh, pull Russia uh, away from China. That didn't happen. Uh, what we've seen is Russia now very, very close to um, the, uh, Russia's very close to China now. And then we see this direct pivot right as things get very, very difficult in Ukraine for the West to Israel. And we had talked about coincidental timing, but people don't seem to remember that Israel was having extreme uh, political issues. They were uh, almost on the verge of like civil war over the uh, court, um, you know, the judicial uh, issues that they were having in the country. Uh, so this whole Hamas thing was very, very, very conveniently timed for Netanyahu and the uh, current uh, administration in uh, Israel. Um, but once again, I don't really see this as anything that's planned. It doesn't really feel like there's a grander plan other than contain China. And Russia having failed uh, in, you know, separating them to contain China, now they move to the Middle East to try to reassert their dominance in this region. But in doing so, and if Gaza continues the way it continues, I think that the U.S. proxy in Israel, in the Middle East, is going to become incredibly isolated and really is just going to become a burden. Uh, Brian said that Israel cannot uh, sustain itself in its current form. I totally agree with that. I think it was about to collapse uh, before the October 7th happened. Uh, and this has just extended that. Uh, this is what the U.S. is really efficient at, is just extending things. Uh, you know, Ukraine has gone on way too long, way past any pragmatic, acceptable level uh, for the Ukrainian people. The, the U.S. doesn't care about the Ukrainian people. I don't really particularly think the U.S. cares about the Israeli people, uh, like Brian said, it also as a, for, a forward operating base. Um, and then post-Israel uh, conflict, as there is this 
there will be a shift to Southeast Asia. Uh, it's, it's very apparent. It's basically being openly stated that that's what's going to happen. Uh, I just don't think the U.S. is going to have the uh, public support, uh, you know, the domestic support for that kind of conflict. Um, I don't think that Asian countries are going to act as uh, non-pragmatically as Ukraine has. Uh, and Israel is basically just trying to stay alive at this point. So they are kind of acting in their own pragmatic interests, whereas Ukraine could have remain very peaceful and benefited from closer cooperation with Russia and Europe at the same time. Um, so the, the conflict in the Middle East, in my own personal opinion, is a pipe dream of the U.S. to try to contain China, and it's just not going to work. I don't even think it's going to ever begin. Uh, China thinks in centuries, whereas the U.S. thinks in weeks. And uh, China has always played the long game and will continue to play the long game. And I think a lot of people, including myself, uh, you know, I came at the Ukraine conflict with a very, very Western mindset. And it was it was highly inappropriate. And it really skewed a lot of my thinking and analysis at the start of the conflict. And now I'm really starting to understand the position that the Russians are in, where they're coming from, the position that the Chinese are in. And like Brian said, patience is just key uh, for all sides. Uh, and the U.S. just does not have the patience. Um, they don't have the patience because I think that they're feeling the pressure. So they have to get something done. But also just culturally, we just don't operate like that. And it has been a mind-blowing experience for me to realize how impatient the U.S. is, how... Uh, immature, I guess, childish, uh, the U.S. is in its foreign policy and how it is burning the candle at both ends uh, in terms of its hegemony ending. Um, so, you know, losing in Ukraine, going to be losing optically in Israel. They're going to win, I guess, if you can call it a win. They're slaughtering the Palestinian people. But that's going to make the whole Middle East look you know, in the mirror and say, is this who we're going to trust? Are we going to listen to Israel and the U.S. who controls Israel, or are we going to do our own things? Brian had talked about Saudi Arabia already pulling away. I think Saudi Arabia has ambitions to be a, have a sphere of influence, a very large sphere of influence in the Middle East, and that directly conflicts with the U.S. So they're losing in the Middle East. They've lost in the Middle East over the last 20 years. This is just the uh, culmination of that losing, I believe, uh, and then moving to Southeast Asia, I just don't, I, I almost see it as a non-starter. I think they will attempt stuff. I think they are attempting, uh, regime change in different places, uh, and they will be successful in some aspects of that, but I don't think you're ever going to see, uh, Taiwanese people fighting Chinese, you know, fighting China, uh, on behalf of the United States. I just don't, I can't see that happening. So, but well, before we go, um, even though you neither of you probably need to, would could you both please plug yourselves? Let us let our listeners know where they can find you and um, where you'll be at next. Oh well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. I'd be happy to come back on again. I enjoyed this conversation. I'm really so. glad you said that because as <laughs> we're talking, I said I'm going to need another episode. I have so many questions. <laughs> so and, and I would be happy to come back. And uh, for, if people want to find and follow my work, just type in the new atlas into YouTube and in the video description below. 
uh, every single video or all the other places you can find and follow my work. I, and I would highly recommend people follow me on Telegram because I put absolutely everything there. Anything that's banned or, or censored on any other platform gets um, Telegram, including full episodes. I post all of my full videos on Telegram. And uh, for people that don't want to pay for YouTube Premium, you can turn on the, the episode and then turn off your screen on your mobile phone and listen to it on Telegram. You can't really do that with YouTube unless you go for premium. So it's just FYI. Yeah. All right. Just got to make sure my mic isn't muted. Um, if you guys like any of what I've said and you want to follow me, I have my own podcast. I'm on YouTube, Rumble, and I also post all of my videos on my Telegram. Uh, you can follow me on Telegram. Uh, it's calibrated. Uh, everything is calibrated with me. So that's kind of my uh, identity. Uh, and then if you guys want constant updates on everything, humor, you know, every I cover everything on Twitter, uh, Aiden or at Squatson. Uh, yeah, right there. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Aria. That's awesome. Um, that's where you can find me. That's where I spend the most amount of time. But you can also find all of my work on Telegram. Uh, and if you like my work and you want to support me on Patreon, I have a Patreon account. And you can find that link in my Telegram, on my Twitter or on my YouTube videos. So thank you. And I really appreciate coming on. Uh, it was very fun. Brian has been on my show multiple times, and I've been on Brian's show multiple times, and uh, we we just uh, agree on a lot. So it's it's very easy to podcast. Well, I disagree on a lot with the two of you, so I'm looking forward to another episode. And thank you all for coming and joining me. This was amazing, and I'm so glad to have you back, Scott. Um, to our listeners, join us soon for Wyatt Reed, Vanessa Bealy, Ava Bartlett, and Norm, Norman Finkelstein at the end of the month. Uh, you can find me in the spaces. You can find Yara there, too. And we will see you next time. Thanks again, Aria. That is a...